Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, it's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, taking you through till uh, half past... Oh, let's see, half past seven, we go till nine o'clock. There, got a bright bright and early, bushy-tailed wake and all the rest of it. Outside is beautiful weather. The birds are all settling there under the beautiful uh, morning uh, hues of different colours. And uh, all the people that are on the uh, trams are like stunned mullets (laughs) because it just seems slightly early, too early. Today on Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to uh, hear again from uh, uh, Lali uh, uh, Chalaya, who uh, has gone out to speak to uh, various people from our Southeast Asian region. And this week, she's uh, talked to Kassan Vijaya from uh, the PS Malaysian Youth Wing, and uh, she'll uh, introduce it and explain various elements of the Malaysian situation in her interview. Uh, we've also got a new episode of Rank and File uh, Radio, which uh, is being put together by Marcus Harrington, which is generally a, a focus on uh, quite the, uh, the the nitty-gritty of uh, unionism at the moment, as the name implies, Rank and File. Uh, later on, we'll get... Uh, Kevin Healy's take on the week that was, and uh, of course, a wrap up chat with Noah Basil, Dr. Noah Basil from Macquarie University. Uh, because today is the last live program for Solidarity Breakfast as we move into four weeks of summer programming, which we where we dip into a variety of different interesting elements that have happened over the year and other things that we've collected specially for you. And after that, next year, the new team will be uh, uh, brushing off their uh, Christmas uh, stupor and uh, putting their hands to the grindstone to produce interesting and diverting and innovative and stimulating radio for your predilection. Okay, now what you might like to do this afternoon. We did it. We beat the East-West Link toll road. We fought it all the way. Hundreds of ordinary women, children and men have shown that community action works by stopping $18 billion of public money being wasted on an undemocratic project driven by sheer big business growth. Come on down, join your community to celebrate with a victory street party this Saturday, December the 13th 
2pm, West Garth and Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, where it all began. Food and drinks and tons of community spirit. That's this Saturday, December 13 at 2pm. There's been um, quite a few uh, things that have been uh, turning up on alternative media about uh, issues that, you know, some of them seep through to the mainstream, but not all. One of them that's a big one, of course, is the CIA report on torture, and apparently the it's on record. The CIA did indeed employ illegal torture tactics over the last decade, but the pre- uh, and the present CIA uh, head is on record as saying that not, but all, not all the operatives did it. So there you go. And uh, in our local uh, world, George Brandis, the Attorney General, was heckled by David Hicks uh, as he was at, when he was at a human rights awards ceremony. He wanted to know Hicks, that is, if Brandis and the Liberals, in the guise of Howard's Liberal government, felt any shame. Uh, about the uh, torture findings since they'd continually denied knowing about Hicks's own torture. Brandis scuffled off and then later in a safer environment gave her uh, an interview saying that he wasn't going to have to talk to terrorists, in inverted commas. Anyway, uh, the other one, of course, that's uh, on everybody's lips, of course, is the uh, attack on uh, Abbott uh, Chief of Staff Peter Krendling and uh, Abbott has done this extraordinary thing. He, you may not be um, forgiven to for forgetting that um, Abbott is actually the uh, Minister for Women uh, the in the uh, present uh, coalition government in federal parliament in Australia, uh, strange as it may seem. And he is now defending his Chief of Staff P- Peter Krendling uh, uh, and saying that uh, the barrage of uh, negative uh, press from the mainstream is really just uh, misogyny. Now, there was a very cute uh, sort of um, response to this by Sally McManus. It's hard to pinpoint when it happened. Perhaps the G20, the moment the Abbott government crossed the line of being hated to being a joke. It, ha- it was when we could see the wheels falling off. First they were wobbly, and then the last few weeks of the parliamentary sitting year are shambles. They stop being in control or having a believable strategy to turn things around or narrative to explain what they are about. Then they began leaking and their discipline fell apart. This is another symptom of this. Their supporters who resound, responded to Abbott's misogyny will be confused. To the rest of us who had watched Abbott's relentless misogynistic attack against Gillard, this cannot be anything other than a total joke. And someone else was pointing out that uh, there's blood in the water and the sharks are coming. We might uh, move on to uh, Lali's uh, chat with uh, the representative of the Malaysian uh, PS uh, Youth Wing. She'll explain. She'll explain what it's all about and uh, inform yourself of uh, the East-West, the... uh, the region that you actually live in. Morning, re- uh, listeners. Today we are in the company of Kesar and Vijayan, who is the secretary of the youth wing of the party Socialist Malaysia. 
He's here to attend a conference organized by the Resistance Youth Wing of the Socialist Alliance. Welcome to Sia Vijayan. Uh, welcome, thank you. Um, I just wondered if you could inform our uh, listeners about what this Youth Wing is all about because we've never heard of uh, PSM having a youth wing. You've, you've met the secretary of um, PSM, our children, in the past, mm. but we have not uh, actually um, interviewed someone from the youth wing. So, what are the youth in Malaysia doing these days, and what have you been achieved? What have you been able to achieve in the last six years? Actually, youth wing of PSM established uh, six years before by uh, youngsters uh, in uh, Malaysian Socialist Party, and uh, now it, the chairperson is our Bawani Case. Miss Listen, 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 well, re- well known by the Malaysian people okay. with the name. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, I'm the sec- gen- secretary for the Socialist Youth. And uh, actually, uh, in stu- student movement in Malaysia is now okay, more progressive and radical compared to the uh, past few years. Now students are more brave to bring student issues. They are much more progressive. And students also, university students also... Uh, starting to take part in uh, people's issues, people's struggle in Malaysia. But uh, but we don't have a student union in uh, Malaysia. Why is that? Uh, that's the problem that we are having now. Because of the few acts and amendments that introduced by the government. In Malaysia, we got one uh, act. It's called as uh, University and Colleges Act 1971. It's introduced in uh, 1970 by Tun Abdul Who was the previous prime minister. <laughs> yeah, previous prime minister. So it still exists in Malaysia. The hack it still exists, and because of the hack, we students are afraid. Uh, yeah, afraid to join <laughs> party, afraid to join a movement, and yeah. uh, afraid to uh, establish one uh, student union in Malaysia nowadays. Mm. So one of the things about Malaysia is that it's been a very repressive regime. In the past, it has been known to be almost. I guess it continues to be a government that um, dishes out institutionalized racism, at least that's how it's known around the world. And the government has specifically designed repressive laws to control workers' rights, women's rights, and even um, students' rights or young people's rights. So I am actually surprised that you are able to organize those uh, young people. Now, maybe you could tell us what are the issues, firstly, for young people in Malaysia at this point of time? Issues uh, uh, of students or issues of ordinary people? No, issues of students for young oh, people. Issues of students. Okay. Yep. Recently in Malaysia, if we <laughs> recently in Malaysia, uh, our students, University Malaya student, the top university in Malaysia, uh, University Malaya Student Association, they organize one uh, talk. So they invite uh, the opposition leader, Datu Sri Anwar Ibrahim, to the campus and give a deliver a speech. For that program, actually, uh, the management, university stu- management, didn't allow the student to uh, allow, organize the program, and they <laughs> don't want the students to participate in uh, in a political uh, mainstream. Mm-hmm. So. On that day, the management asked the secretary to lock the gate, uh, university gate, and uh, we a thousand of students gather in front of university gate, and we managed to break the gate, and lastly we managed to get inside the university, and we managed to invite the opposition leader and uh, uh, yeah. delivered a speech. So the next day, the next day, the head uh, main student association leadership they were accused under this act. It's called a. Uh, just now I mentioned uh, University and Colleges Act 1971 and uh, the proceeding is still going on in Malaysia. 
so eight students and we uh, uh, the, for the first proceeding we do the occupy university malaya and we occupy the university mm-hmm. so this is uh, a few uh, uprising student uprising in malaysia and second is uh, we always uh, do runs campaigns for academic freedom sp- uh, freedom of speech in the campus and also we have form a coalition against this uh, auku we call it in auku the the hack of university and colleges act in 1971 uh, this coalition is moving against the hack and we have sent a memorandum to the our human rights commission in malaysia just a few months before so this is the, the campaigns who, which are runs by the student movement but in our youth socialists of psm we are we always uh, organize protests or came uh, we always organize activity to bring the awareness of free education in malaysia mm-hmm. so just uh two three weeks before we had one protest in front of kcc uh twin tower we call it so the capital of uh, malaysia and capital of malaysia most of the students joined in this uh protests are from uh, university students we have uh, one coalition in malaysia we call it as uh, movement demanding free education and uh, just recently few before few uh, weeks before we joined a uh, international student movement and we trying to organize a global action and uh, so many uh, protests uh, happen in my, all over the world education's a big issue actually internationally mm-hmm. free education campaign is starting to get the steam including in australia given what's happened in the recent past um other than education what other issues do young people face in malaysia do they do they have housing issues do they have mental health issues mm-hmm. because i know drugs are a big issue in malaysia just like here among <sighs> students and the these service health services don't meet the needs of the young people Yeah. So are you involved in any campaigns around health issues housing issues for young people Yeah in Malaysia the only party which always uh, ran a campaign for ordinary people campaign like uh, such as a uh, housing campaign decent houses for people stop the privatization of health uh, care uh, services and uh, also we have a coalition against the GST which will be implemented on uh, next year 1st April goods and services tax uh, <laughs> and also we have a uh, anti tpp movement anti trans pacific partnership agreement movement it's still in negotiation between government and uh, american uh, we uh, psm socialist youth we involved in uh, this all this campaign mm-hmm. just a few uh, months before we had one protest in uh, in front of our housing ministry in malaysia for housing issues in malaysia and second we had uh, another protest in front of parliament i think few weeks before against the gst goods and services tax and few hundred people gather in front of parliament to send a message to the government that people do want gst in malaysia now the movement is still uh, doing so many activities against the gst in malaysia our socialist youth and uh, psm are doing a good job and we continue doing this kind of campaigns we are getting more support from the ordinary people from the grassroots people we are people see uh, psm uh, psm members as hero because not because we are because of our ideology only but because our our work our grassroots work we always go to the ground go to the street protest with the people and uh, because we are genuine and our political are very principle okay one of the, a couple of things i want to ask you one is what's the racial composition of the socialist youth because race is a big card used by the government what has been used since independence 
Um, I know the Malay working class has now started to protest against the treatment the government has been giving him for the last 50 years, really. So if you want to talk about the race composition first, then we'll go on to the question of the women. On the race composition, it's actually in youth socialist uh, youth. We have our uh, Malay race, Chinese, and also Indian race. But majority of, uh, of them are Indians now. But now we are getting more Malay uh, membership. So it's a, which is a good thing for us. And I think for PSM, PSM we're getting more youths, Malay youths, youngsters to join our party. And why, why are Malay young people joining PSM? Because the word socialism is such a negative picture for Malaysia. It has been, it's been anti-communist since the time the British left Malaysia. So what is it about the current situation that attracts Malay youth to a socialist party, you think? Actually, before this, our government uh, tried to wipe out the Communist Party yep. and also <laughs> same part as uh, the socialist movement in Malaysia and a socialist club in a uh, university. In uh, 1998, uh, three main groups established uh, our socialist party. But uh, in 1998, the government wanted to de-legalize PSN mm. because PSM are the first party after a few years the government banned the word socialism and communist. PSM uh, uh, decided to bring back the name, socialist name, in a uh, political mainstream. So in 1998, the government wanted to legalize our uh, PSM. So uh, we had uh, 11 years struggle to <laughs> get license from the government. And in 2008, uh, end of the 2008, we uh, managed to get license. But it is because we are the only party uh, bring our state to court. <laughs> so at last uh, we got our license and when... So you are reg- of a, yeah, a legally registered Yeah, party. legally registered. And now we are moving uh, very legally and we are doing so many activities now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now the issues that you can identify that attracts the Malay youth, yeah. what are they? And uh, Malay youths, <laughs> yeah. More Malay youths are coming to our party because they... they they looks at our struggle. They looks our, at our grassroots work. We are really are the true fighters who are bring the people uh, issues in front. So I think uh, people are very clear, and our youngsters nowadays they they are very clear in uh, doing analysis. So they can do analysis which party are doing the grassroots work and which party are very principled. Mm-hmm. So I think we attracted the Malay youths, and the Malay youths are coming to our party now. The other question I want to put to you is the question of women. I know there are a lot of women in the PSM in Malaysia. Just wondered, you know, um, how much of your leadership consists of women and um, what attracts women to your party? A uh, woman plays a big role in our party also. I think uh, our vice chairman, uh, also a woman, uh, her name is Saraswati. Mm-hmm. She's also standing in election. La, last general election in 2013. I think uh, in PSM, the, we always don't uh, see she's a woman or she's a male, man. Or we always focus on who is uh, to going to the street, work with the people. So I think uh, women are really uh, very big contribution from the women mm-hmm. yeah, for in our party. In Malaysia, there's still a domestic violence uh, happening in Malaysia against women. But we are always, PSM always... Uh, uh, aware on the issue and we are playing our big issue and in in PSM also we have our women desk so our women desk always uh, will aware which, uh, with uh, these kind of uh, issues uh, domestic violence against women and child abuse 
So what what does a domestic uh, the sorry the um, desk mean? What do you mean by there's a woman's desk? Woman desk means it's like a bureau, woman bureau. And people yeah. can call in. Yeah, I can call us anytime and uh, communicate with our comrade. And they will help them. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. So I just wanted to move on to another topic that's very relevant to Australia. This is Linus in Kuantan and the refinery that's, that's been set up by the Linus company. I wonder if you can update us on that state at the moment. So at the moment, uh, uh, the Impunan Ijao, the coalition is still uh, fighting against the uh, Linus uh, c- company, industry, the plant. And recently, just uh, one week before, just uh, one week before, we had one protest uh, outside the Linus AGM in Sydney. So 16 uh, Malaysians joined the protest. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a message to the government, Australian uh, uh, Linus company and to the government also. It's in court, in the courts, isn't it? The issue in Malaysia. Yeah, it's still uh, yeah, in the process. You don't know when the hearing is next? Yeah. We are not, uh, I don't know much about the court. Okay. So PSM takes a big role in um, opposing Linus's refinery yeah, in yeah, Kuantan? Of course. And just a few months before, we had one uh, big protest in front of the plant mm-hmm. at Gaping. And thousands of people gathered in front of the plant and sh- showed their dissatisfaction. Yes, it's, it's environmentally very yeah. polluting. It yeah. harms people's yeah. health and so on. And I know there were a lot of protests um, mm. in Kuantan itself so and in Malaysia. St- yeah, so the struggle is continues against the planners issue in Malaysia. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. To, thank you. Just an update on the issue of students who were arrested. Uh, on the 10th of December, there are reports to say that the Malaysian University students are pitching tent dwellings outside their campus gates, dubbed Occupy UM, in protest over the fate of the eight fellow students, the UM8 they are called, who were punished by the administration with suspensions and fines for being involved recently in an unsanctioned talk where opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim was the only speaker. Student leader and president of Sisters in Movement, one Noor Shamimi, one Sajira, said in a statement that the occupation would last until the suspension was lifted, the fine scrapped, and academic freedom was returned to the students. And she also said that today, together with my fellow students, we launch Occupy UM in solidarity with the UM8. We will camp together in solidarity until the university withdraws all punishment against them. She said, we have also chosen the Malaysian flag as a symbol of our uprising. So that's um, a very brave group of students who are prepared to fight. Um, That's amazing in uh, Malaysia because um, the young people and the socialist movement, or any protest for for that matter, is curbed harshly by the Malaysian government. So we shall continue to monitor the situation there. Buy a ticket in the Fariciar raffle. You could be in the running to win a luxurious weekend camping experience in a fancy bell tent for two. Generously donated by Happy Glampa. They do all the work so that you have just to turn up, relax and enjoy. Check out happyglampa.com.au for more information. Drop into the station during business hours or call us on 9419 8377. Happy Glampa.
is a 3CR supporter. Another incident that was uh, reported on a uh, a university campus recently was the, uh, uh, in support of the uh, rage, a week, a rage, a week of rage against police murder that's been going on in America in response to the specific deaths of uh, Michael Brown and Eric Garner. The uh, and, uh, and more and more and more and more names are cropping up around the uh, deaths of uh, black people in America by police. And uh, these two particular ones, uh, Michael Brown and Eric Garner, both went to the grand ju- juries and they, it was found that uh, no... Uh, nothing need uh, no police need to answer anything uh, for their behaviours in either incidents, and it's caused this a huge uh, outpouring of anger about um, the incidents, and has inspired the work of uh, groups like uh, Black Lives Matter hashtag Black Lives Matter, and um, other groups that are organising these uh, campaigns across America. But a particular thing that came out was at Oakland, which is uh, where the, there's Burke, uh, where Berkeley is. Um, Oakland and Berkeley, uh, they had a, um, a march in support, and uh, some undercover police officers were identified in the crowd. And uh, because they were uh, felt intimidated by the crowd's response to them, they drew their guns and, in fact, someone was arrested. It was interesting because there's a group of people called uh, uh, Undercover Cop Watch and um, it, it, start, it started a whole furore across the uh, Facebook world and social media. Uh, as uh, and allowed people to understand more and more about uh, the issues of undercover cops and the use of undercover cops to uh, uh, demonise and uh, reduce the effectiveness of uh, political movements. And uh, it went on to a discussion about uh, Occupy in New York. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, the dissipation of Occupy in New York was uh, put down to... Uh, fragmentation and disorganisation on the part of the uh, Occupy activists. However, some people have come across, uh, have come out saying that uh, they w- this was another incidence of undercover cops having uh, a profound effect because the demonstrators themselves had no awareness of them. And I presume this is one of the reasons for why undercover cop... Uh, surveillance is now going on. And uh, Marshall Garrett, who told the Village Voice from the Occupy activist movement in New York uh, that uh, undercover coughs came and acted in a disruptive and loud fashion during an action at Citibank, which the protesters had uh, held. But what was unknown to us and to a lot of people that day, including those in Times Square, was that there were undercover cops already there, paid to be disruptive and to be loud. One undercover cop present was louder than the entire group. And despite the protesters' carefully laid out plans to comply with the law, avoid uh, ticking off city 
banks, workers and customers and to keep an eye on the the exits, they found themselves trapped and now witted at every turn. It was a bit startling how inside their information was, how they were being paid to go to these protests and put us in situations where we'd be arrested and not be able to leave. That's right, the police and bank security guards told the protesters to leave, block the exits when they tried to comply and then hauled them off to jail for not leaving. Uh, an interesting tactic and, in fact, interestingly uh, reflected in the East-West Link uh, uh, issue. Uh, sometimes the uh, the Pajama Brigade or the... Um, the slightly more aggressive, uh, pol- the more aggressive uh, uh, group of police in their pajamas would come out and say, "Move, move, move," and then make it impossible for people to move, uh, which was uh, something that uh, protesters felt quite aggrieved about, considering most of the uh, picketers were quite uh, uh, householders from around the area. They it was a highly politicising event for most of those people. Anyway, uh, if you want to celebrate the win at uh, East West Link uh, victory, then uh, listen to the next message. We did it! We beat the East West Link toll road! We fought it all the way. Hundreds of ordinary women, children, and men have shown that community action works. By stopping $18 billion of public money being wasted on an undemocratic project driven by sheer big business group. What do we want? Public transport. What do we want? Now. Come on down. Join your community to celebrate with a victory street party. This Saturday, December the 13th, 2pm, West Garth and Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, where it all began. Food and drinks and tons of community spirits. That's this Saturday, December 13 at 2 p.m.
lousy scab or will you be a man? On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, we look at a growing trend in the Australian workforce and a situation now common in the mining industry, the fly-in, fly-out work arrangement. Uh, today, Mark Farrell, em- employed on a fly-in, fly-out basis, uh, joins us to discuss issues associated with the fly-in, fly-out uh, model. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thanks, Marcus. No worries. Okay, so you, uh, along with 100,000 other Australian workers, are employed as a fly-in, fly-out worker. Uh, in simple terms, for listeners not, not familiar with this, um, could you define what a fly-in, fly-out worker is? Uh, well, basically, um, every 26 days oh. I get to fly home. But um, I live in Victoria and fly to Perth, which is a decent haul, and then two hours from Perth I fly to Barrow Island and spend 26 days away from my family and I get nine days back at home, well, eight days technically, but it's supposed to be a 26 and nine roster. Okay, so um, so you're employed in the mining industry, of course? It's, uh, it's a gas, but it's pretty much the same as um, mining. Okay, um, yeah, so what role are you employed in and what union are you a member of? Um, I'm employed as an electrician and I'm in the ETU. I've joined the Western Australian Union and I've kept my Victorian Union active. Okay, um, what other unions are there out there in the Pilbara and what what workers are affected by the fly-in, fly-out in the Pilbara? Uh, the, the majority, I would say, would be the CFMEU. Okay. Uh, the AMW have got a presence, and the ETU, and we're all all affected. Okay. In the minerals boom of the uh, 1970s, the Pilbara was described as a union stronghold. Um, could the same be said of the current time? Um, not so much. Okay. It, um, coming from Victoria, we were pretty staunch, and um, oh, it's a bit like starting from scratch in WA. They've let something slip over the years, but we're trying our darndest to um, get everyone back on board. Okay. Do you think the f- uh, the introduction of the flying fly-out model uh, was a way to curb the union influence? I think so. A lot of um, young blokes that haven't necessarily had to fight for any conditions they see the big dollars and just automatically think that the bosses have given it. To them, so it's been a long, slow process of trying to re-educate some. And that's so often the uh, problem in Australia today with uh, workers going on the job um, not having seen or witnessed the fight that uh, others have gone before us who have had to 
fight for everything we have, whether it be wages, conditions, annual leave, long service leave, superannuation workers have uh, waged fights against the boss to win this. Uh, none of it was given to us by the kind heart of the boss, as you quite correctly point out. Yes, exactly. It's a bit frustrating at times, but um, we're slowly getting there, I think. OK. Um, so workers from all over Australia fly into the Pilbara for work. I mean, is the reason through a, a lack of work in parts of Australia or purely for the, the, the big dollars? Or well, I think it's a little bit of both. Like myself personally, like I was a maintenance electrician down at um, Bluescape or BHP in Hastings okay. in Victoria, and um, I was finally made redundant. Um, so there was no real work in Victoria, so I tried my hand with the flying flyer stuff. Okay, um, as listeners could probably imagine, uh, the working conditions, um, working outside in that part of Australia would be quite harsh. Uh, yes, I spent 12 months with Leighton's pulling cables. Well, there was three million metres of cable that we... We pulled in in 12 month period, and a lot of that was outside. And some of the, the cables we were pulling, like normal household cable, is 2.5 millimeters squared. We were okay. pulling in 630 millimeters squared single cable, so it was quite heavy. And um, out in the heat, it, it sort of took its toll. Okay. Um, so with the pattern of work, is it? Yeah, uh, you spend three weeks on the shift. Uh, it's 26 days. Okay. Without a break, you um, have a half Sunday, but uh, you still got to get up early, and you get the afternoon off. But it's basically twenty six days straight. Okay. Um, with so uh, spending so long away from home and um, family, uh, what what negative impacts are there on the fly in fly out workers? It's uh, endless, really. You've got to try to keep a pretty positive um, outlook, but there's been in the, or this year alone there's been uh, two suicides, one on site that um, he and his life in his in his room and the other one couldn't get back on the island and he ended up um, uh, finishing himself in Perth so it's uh, it's, um, it's, it's pretty depressing. Okay. Currently an investigation has taken place in Western Australia. Uh, the Education and Health Standing Committee's inquiry into mental health impacts of fly-in, fly-out uh, work arrangements. Uh, the inquiry into fly-in, fly-out workers' mental health has been told. Uh, there were major flaws in the way suicides were recorded and deaths in camps and off-work sites uh, were excluded, so the number... Um, may be quite higher than the two. Uh, this meant that suicides that occur in camps at the workers' home are not recorded as uh, fly-in, fly-out um, suicides. Um, so it also meant the issue of whether the fly-in, fly-out lifestyle uh, was a contributing factor to the deaths was not called into question. So um, the real number of suicides uh, probably isn't known. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's hard to gauge, but the thing is, uh, the companies that you work for push this um, uh, look-after-your-mates mentality, but okay. when it comes to the real, real problems, all they do is give you a, a faceless number to ring if you've got a problem, whereas, you know, it's, 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 it's more 
should be more on the floor and and realistically you do look after your mates and if you're in a small crew you can tell if someone's off their game but there's still really no one to turn to. Okay, I suppose that's a, an issue amongst uh, men not wanting to talk about these things. Um, there's a, a campaign by the unions in the Pilbara to address uh, mental health issues. There's a, a it's called Mates in Construction. Okay. They seem to have a pretty good uh, track record, but getting them on the island, because where I work, it's an A-class nature reserve, so you're basically isolated from the mainland and it's very hard to get anything in or out. It's got to go through quarantine, so everything's pretty strict. So basically the companies have got a hold on you and you can't bring anything in or out without their approval. Okay. Uh, And um, the quarters where the workers uh, reside for their time on shift, uh, what are are those conditions like? They're not too bad, really, but it's... Well, there's everything you could want in a camp, I would imagine, and you could either take it one of two ways. You could look at it like a prison, whereas apparently where we reside is has been designed on a prison in um, Pennsylvania. It's, it's Chevron-owned and run, so the Americans have a fair bit to do with it. Or you could look at it as a fitness camp because there's quite a lot to do, so... I tried to be a little bit more positive and it's a 26 fitness camp for me, 26 day fitness camp and as I said, if you keep positive, it's not too bad, it's just hard being away from my wife. Okay, so there's um, activities the workers can do when they're not on their shift? Yes, there's lots lots to do, Okay, but the, the worst thing on Barrow Island is the, um, the coverage, the the inter- internet and your phone coverage sometimes is atrocious and if you're having difficulties, that's your only lifeline and that's where a lot of the troubles um, okay. begin because you can't have a conversation with your loved ones. Okay. Um, so in the regions where the flying fly-out workers uh, live for their time, are there also workers who live permanently in the region? Um, not where I am. Okay. There's no permanent residence, but in Karatha and and on the mainland, there is proper set-up communities where people um, actually have relocated. Okay. Um, do you have any idea what the relationship is between those local workers who reside in the area and the, the fly-in workers? Uh, initially, it's pretty bad, Okay. but I think once they get to know that the fly-in workers are normal people, and some of them do spend a little bit of money in town, they sort of come around, but because you're flying out, you don't really contribute much to the community, so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a hard one, that one. Okay, and as for the mining companies, uh, I mean, what could they change in their ways? What could they do better to protect the, the fly-in, fly-out workers? Um, have a bit more of a, a family-friendly roster. We're actually pushing at the moment on Barrow Island uh, 20 and 10 roster, which gives us less time on the island and an extra day at home. Okay. And I think that would um, go a lot towards um, helping your mental health.
Okay, are those demands are part of uh, a round of bargaining for an enterprise agreement? Uh, yes, they are. we're going through that at the moment. But uh, the company have offered a, a 23 and 9, but basically that's all they're, they're, um, they're giving at the moment. So we've got a big campaign and we've got a vote coming up and hopefully everyone will vote no and then we'll be able to go back to the, the table and actually negotiate... Uh, the guts of the agreement, because it's a bit of a decoy at the moment, was offering a few extra days, but it's all the rest of the stuff that's not been touched. Okay. Um, is that, that the only demand, or are there other other demands, other campaigns to improve wages and conditions? Oh, there's lots of them. Like they they um they can dictate to you and send you off the island and pretend that they haven't got enough beds. So they'll send you off to bring new starters on. Uh, if it if it rains, they can not pay you. If they if they send you off the island for a bed bust, well, they not they don't pay you on the weekends. Whereas we signed a contract for 26 days, but they say that um, because it's weekend work that they don't have to pay you. And there's just a whole gamut of things needs to be tidied up. Okay. Um. So obviously, uh, delegates and uh, workers off the floor who are involved uh, in the negotiations for the Enterprise Agreement? Uh, yes, they are. The, the, as I said before, I was with um, Leighton's and they had, they had okay. no one, but where I'm, with I, the company I'm with now, there's quite a few active people off the floor and it's got a good feel about it. Everyone's getting involved and sticking together, which is good. Okay, you mentioned before the campaign was uh, for a no vote, so uh, should the no vote uh, get up, uh, where to from there? Well, then we can go back to the table and okay. and um, Chevron will realise that they haven't got a, a stranglehold on the island and people are actually a bit concerned about the, the whole agreement. So if it's a strong no vote, well then maybe they'll sit up and take notice. Okay, uh, thanks for joining us today on uh, Rank and File Radio, Mark, to talk about the uh, situation with fly-in, fly-out uh, workers. All right, thank you, Marcus. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Radio 3CR, and I am Associate Professor in History, Claire Wright. And she is to you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, thank you for to Marcus Harrington for his report on flying and fly out workers. Fascinating stuff. Very difficult to get interviews with people about uh, the actual conditions of people in these situations. It's uh, quite uh, disturbing, I'd have to say. There's a couple of uh, little things that uh, you might like to know. Noam Chomsky is 86 this week. Uh, good. Happy birthday, Noam. And uh, Fidel Castro has just won a Chinese Peace Prize. This might be an example of making friends with your enemies' enemies. The former Cuban president, Fidel Castro, received China's Confucius Peace Prize on Thursday for his contributions to advancing world peace. While in office, Castro did not resort to violence or force to to settle disputes in international relations, especially with the United States, said the prize co-founder Liu Xiquin stated, according to the Chinese state-owned Global Times. Uh, he uh, The prize was um, not collected by Castro. He didn't travel to China to receive the award. Instead, a Cuban exchange student attended the ceremony in his place. The prize itself includes a gold statuette of ancient 
Chinese philosopher Confucius, a certificate and $15,000 US. Go Fidel. Uh, we're uh, cruising up to uh, Kevin's look at the week that was. Uh, but before we do, there's just one other little weeny bit that I've collected for you. Uh, the uh, prize for the best quote from an Australian uh, poster this week must go to the Australian Teachers Union poster. The difference between my illiterate grandparents and me is two generations of free state education. And that was from the 2014 Man Booker Prize winner, Richard Flanagan. Go, Richard. Uh, the um, uh, Let's see. Anything else? Anything? Oh, yeah, that's right. The uh, the after the Victorian election, the uh, opposition leader Matthew Guy already said they were entirely pl- uh, to blame for some figures which weren't delivered as they should have been. Crime statistics, apparently, even though the Sun Herald would have us believe that uh, crime has hit the roof in Victoria, there has actually only been a mild. 3.3% rise in crime across the state. This one's the real shocker. Victoria's prison population surged under the Liberal National Party, climbing from around 4,500 to an extraordinary peak of 6,100, the biggest jump on record. Also, of course, it may not be any news to you that ambulance waiting times in 2013 began to rise significantly under the Napthine government and figures blew out all over the state. Anyway, we'll move on to the week that was with Kevin. I'm sure he can keep you abreast with of even more details of the scuttlebutt of Australian life. A weak solidarity, Brecky team listener, when these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, politically correct, black armband brigades who sympathise with the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping boat people, illegals, who can't comprehend that we must decide who comes here, must protect, must control our borders. Just ask the Terra Nullius people. They know all about what happens when you don't control your borders. Goody-goodies reckon hundreds are dying out on the oceans where our Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boat, scuttle them more lash sun, says they're not dying thanks to him. And scuttle them's word can always be relied upon. He told us, after all, that that illegal who died from a small cut on his leg received state-of-the-art medical treatment. So this report that he went without medical treatment until too late must be wrong, like those reports from unreliable sources like international refugee bodies that hundreds are still dying out where Scuttle Them has stopped them dying. His colleague, the Minister for Privatised Education, Christopher Payne in there, even though he can't get through his progressive improvements to education like keeping the riffraff out, is advertising with our money the measures he can't get through. Uh, Christopher, how can you advertise something that isn't even law? So it can become law. We we have a responsibility to educate young people what the law will become when the socialists and the greens and the cross benches who make me very cross stop taking this country backwards, stop preventing us, taking us forward to what education was like in the 1950s. Uh, but, but you opposed the socialist advertising policies which at least were, were the law. This is not advertising and this is not the law, so there is no comparison. But more importantly, this is ideology and there is no law against advertising ideology.
On the economy, our banks are up in arms at proposals they should have reserves large enough for them to ride a future financial crisis without having to rely on the too-big-to-fail hand-over-the-public-purse solution. This is a bloody financial crisis. This will reduce dividends to our shareholders and the law does and must respect our responsibility to our shareholders. The, The law must be maintained. To make matters worse, the report says responsible companies thinking only of their shareholders should not charge exorbitant fees for credit card purchases. We object to the use of the word exorbitant. Exorbitant is in the eye of the exploiter, a beholder. But one positive from former big banker David Morey from a mate's report. Get bloody unionists who know nothing about the economic system other than to stuff it up off superannuation boards. Why? The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review summed up the problem. Industry funds paid $88 million to directors over 12 months and given that directors are equally appointed by evil unions and caring employer groups, it pointed out more than $40 million would have flowed to the union movement. How evil, how evil that unions should have a say in investing workers' money. Uh, what about the more than 40 mil of workers' money going to the caring employers? I don't follow that, that that's money rightfully going to where it rightfully should go. The Capitalist Review also pointed out that retail funds pay directors 450 mil compared to that 88 mil, but the retail industry explained the figure was inflated because it included salaries, expenses and consulting fees. Well, that clearly explains the 511% difference. And might we point out again, this lovely, lovely money is rightfully going to where it should rightfully go. The article went on to point out, well implied, there is something morally and ethically wrong with unions getting any of those fees which only the responsible caring business class deserve, iterating that the Royal Kanga mission into evil unions was also investigating this travesty of financial justice, possibly making it a crime for unions to receive any of this lovely, lovely money. The only relationship evil unions should have with lovely, lovely money... The Crown Prosecutor assisting the Kanga mission, Jeremy Tolger, told us, is for us to extract the most reasonable exorbitant fines we are forced to impose if we are to stop them doing their evil work like trying to represent their members. Well, Jeremy and his close mate, the Royal Kanga Kanga missioner Dyson, not hiding his bias, are ardent believers in justice. Oh, and when that great icon, the flying... This is your pilot speaking. Due to technical difficulties like nothing works, we're turning back. Flying Kangaroo, the airline we used to own, outsourced its maintenance. That is, sadly had to let go the maintenance workers who contributed to its former record for reliability. It told us all would be well. We wouldn't notice the difference. Well, the sadly let go workers might notice a little bit of difference like no income, but it has worked well. Its current warm, fuzzy, moving advertising campaign highlighting people returning home to True Blue Aussie, falling into the arms of loved ones, tearful reunions, reducing us all to tears, doesn't show the bit where it took them three and a half weeks to get home due to every takeoff having to go back to where it took off. So the beautiful scene of family reunion is born of relief. Thank God you made it. So good news. We can report that one quant crash flight this morning made it all the way without one incident. 
our real concern, Big Supremo Alan Joystick told us, is to maintain the only thing that needs to keep going up. Wonder what that is? It's certainly not the planes. Sadly, terrorism struck at Attorney General George Brandy's brain Wednesday night when heckled in a terrifying way by terrorist David Hicks, who complained about True Blue Aussie doing nothing when he was locked up in the US of the UN of the US of the world's Guantanamo Bay Cuban holiday camp, where all these terrorists are held, and to show how caring and conforming of human rights the US of is, they are spared the trauma, the stress of having to go through a trial, of having to face charges, of worrying they might be found guilty and locked up. Why, at week's end, there were only 136 terrorists enjoying US of hospitality at sunny Guantanamo, and after all, big supremo Barack for change, change, change has only had six years to fulfil his promise to close the joint. These things must be thought through. And there are people like this Hicks who still reckon the US of has no concern for human rights. George was handing out human rights awards and the big one, the Golden Waterboard, after 23 days standing still without sleep, was presented to the good old CIA for its eternal vigilance as, in, as international protector of human rights, of liberty, freedom and democracy. The award accepted on the good old CIA's behalf by our very own guardian of our liberties, ASIO. On that Barack for promise to close Guantanamo, and he's getting round to it, see, uh, and this is true, La Trobe is offering a course aimed at improving leadership, including offering politicians and presumably would-be politicians a chance to improve their pol- politician skills. Right, we've explained that. Let's test what you've learned. Now, the time to break a promise is A, at the policy launch, B, during the election campaign, or C, after the election. Uh, Well done, class. You all got it right. It it was a bit of a no-brainer. The answer, of course, is C. Now, do we then, A, claim we have not broken a promise, B, insist the broken promise fulfills the promise, or C, attack those who question our integrity by suggesting we have broken a promise? Not so good. Only 60% of you got that one. The answer, of course, is all three. If the attack persists, do do you admit you, A, broke a promise but had no choice, B, admit you broke a promise but only because circumstances have changed thanks to the legacy left by the opposition, C, blame the opposition? Not bad. 55% got that. The, The answer clearly is B and C. Those who said, hey, might want to rethink your ambitions. See, one of the people involved is former caring business class party, very temporary supremo Brendan Nill Achievement's son. Remember him? Who presumably will conduct a course on how to become the answer on a trivia night. On that learning curve, our very own supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, met Ukraine's visiting big supremo Petro Poroshenko of the Swastikas and Jackboots party. Well, Petro explained, it's not a real party like your caring business class party where when you don't need to get elected but just throw out those evil commies who were elected, you you don't need the restrictions of a party. Uh, yes, Petro, uh, could you run that past me, uh, particularly the no need for an election bit? 
Finally, as the beautiful seasonal story of the birth of the dear baby Jesus gets the even more beautiful Christmas sound of the cash registers ringing, let's finish our year that was with Scuttle Them. Your great Christian values must be abashed at the inhumanity of that community which said there was no room at the inn when those refugees sought refuge. I can't believe anybody could be that cruel, Scuttle Them's eyes welled up with Christian love and charity. No cruelty here, just a big favour for you, listener. I'm out of here till February, presenting you with several weeks of relief from this nonsense. Enjoy the break and stay safe. Good. We did it! We beat the East-West Link toll road! We fought it all the way. Hundreds of ordinary women, children and men have shown that community action works by stopping $18 billion of public money being wasted on an undemocratic project driven by sheer big business What do we want? Public Come on down, join your community to celebrate with a victory street party. This Saturday, December the 13th, 2pm, West Garth and Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, where it all began. Food and drinks and tons of community spirit. That's this Saturday, December 13 at 2pm. And uh, that was uh, a lovely piece from uh, Kevin Healy. I'm sorry, Kevin, that I cut your good bye. He meant to tell you goodbye and happy Christmas. I'm sure I, I put the happy Christmas in. I'm sure he just said goodbye. He has no affiliations there. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to move on to our last little chat with Noah for the year. Actually, over the summer period, we've got uh, four weeks of summer, summer programming. Noah will uh, be included because we're going to have a chat with him about imperialism. I'm sure you're all sitting on the edge of your seats uh, because you want to know the progress of imperialism in our modern era. So, uh, But today, we're just doing a little wrap-up of uh, events in the Middle East, but also having a little chat that moved on to an analysis of uh, mainstream media. Uh, uh, anyway, here we go. Here's Noah. It's interesting that Netanyahu in Israel has decided to call a snap election. What do you think that's all about? Oh, look, clearly he's behind in the polls. There's a huge amount of dissatisfaction with his domestic policy. And this is an attempt for him to try and, uh, you know, from what I've read, to try and take advantage of the little bit of foreign policy and security sort of advantage that he has at the moment, um, especially, in, you know, reports that the Israeli Air Force struck sites, uh, targets in Syria, and, you know, it's just very timely for him, and uh, I think he's trying to take whatever advantage he can of the small popularity boost he's got out of the security and, and you know, hardline foreign policy approach that he's, uh, he's taken. Well, one of the interesting points about Netanyahu and uh, mainstream media discussions of this snap election has been the notion that even though he's unpopular, there are no other credible strong men to uh, take his place. How important is the strong man icon in an Israeli context, do you think? 
Well, I don't think it's that important. I think that's a lot to do with Western representations of the Middle East, that you, unless you have a strong man and there's the gender bias already there, they forget Golda Meir was the strong woman many years ago in Israel. So, But, yeah, this idea of a strong leader who can keep you know, sort of these Middle Eastern countries together and in some sort of stable way, maintaining some sort of stable political climate is just one of these mythologies that has long been used to support uh, dictatorships in the region. I mean, that was the same argument with the why Saddam Hussein should be supported in Iraq or Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. It's the idea that without this strong leadership, these countries uh, and the people there are too politically naive and savage to uh, come up with some sort of workable democratic um, alternative. And that is just, uh, I, I think that's quite a, just a racist approach to understanding the very complex politics of the region. Now, the uh, politics of fear, quite clearly for a internal Israeli population, would register very highly considering past history. Yeah. You made reference to the internal issues of, you know, bread and butter issues, yeah, I guess. Yeah. How important are those? I mean, what is the economy of the ordinary Israeli like at the moment? Well, I mean, it's interesting that when the Arab Spring broke out, there was a, an increase in public discontent, not Arab Israeli public discontent, but Jewish-Israeli discontent around the same issues that were uh, were at the forefront of the uprisings in Egypt and elsewhere, and that was around unemployment, cost of living, food, and a whole range of other issues. And there was an occupied Jerusalem and an occupied Tel Aviv movement during this period as well, which got no uh, international reportage whatsoever. So, I mean, the same sort of issues that are confronting Western and non-Western economies alike across the world, accumulation of wealth amongst a small population, most of that um, accumulators of wealth are connected to the government or to a small group of well-connected individuals who seem to benefit from government policy, and a government that operate to benefit that small group of hyper-rich capitalists uh, to the disadvantage of the rest of the population. Israel has become a neoliberal state par excellence, where a lot of what were public services were privatised, where the economy has become high-tech, high-capital, and where employment conditions of, for majority of Israelis has deteriorated over the last two decades. What is very interesting about Israel, though, is that the small minority of religious Israeli Jews still are able to remain a burden on the state, not paying tax and having a whole range of opportunities and services at their disposal that the majority of other Israelis do not have. And that's part of the tension within Israel as well between a society which is largely secular in many parts of the country, uh, well-educated, who should be socially mobile, and a, uh, a large minority of religious Jews who don't, who many of them in the settlements, by the way, in the occupied territories, many of them who uh, rely on social welfare. And this has been one of the tensions that is really the forefront now, I think, of Israel and being seen in the sort of political sort of sense of inactivity or unwillingness to be sort of involved in the formal political process in the same way that we've seen disenchantment with it here in Australia or in the US. And so it'd be interesting to see the, how the, poll, the voting actually proceeds. And that's maybe why Netanyahu is seen as 
not having facing uh, major challenger, it is really a sense that there isn't a representative or a spokesperson for the people who feel disenfranchised by the current political system. Same as here, I mean, who are our political representatives for overturning neoliberalism and the sort of erosion of the public state? We, we can't turn to Labor. They've proven just as ineffective in this area as the Liberals. Maybe not as as they they maybe not as barbaric and and as um, uh, barbaric in the sense of you know the the sense that they are sort of vandalising uh, the social contract. But Labor's no friend of social welfare state here in Australia at all. And I think in the in the Israeli case, it's a similar sense of well, who does represent? those who feel disenfranchised and alienated. Now, you were saying before that uh, the, you know, the big man concept that's been touted in the mainstream media to the international community is possibly just a racist mythology uh, yep. creation. This sort of tends to take us into a discussion that uh, John Pilger recently raised in a, in a lecture that he gave in England about uh, the need for what he called a fifth estate. He was saying that the fourth estate, which was uh, conjured by the English politician Burke yep. as the press who needed to keep the business class and the political class under scrutiny was itself now uh, needing to be scrutinised by genuine journalists uh, rather than the people who are now being found in uh, uh, reputable media outfits. You know, he mentions the New York Times, he he mentions the Guardian, he mentions the Washington Post, and his evidence was that uh, if the truth had been told, that in fact they probably would not have been able to get away with Iraq and that what he calls a bloodbath. His further argument that mainstream media of this sort, international mainstream media, reputable, actually airbrushes out the significance of certain countries like Saudi Arabia. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, continue. No, no, well, I was just wondering, uh, can you talk around those issues? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing we have to say is that when the fourth estate was conceived of, it was mainly a social... uh, It was was motivated by particularly workers' cooperatives and workers' movements and and the Labor parties in Britain as a way of galvanising workers against the oppressive uh, state um, apparatus and the um, um, capitalist system. I mean, this was the 1840s and 50s. In the half-century after that, uh, most of the press was actually taken over by entrepreneurs, and so that you know the the nature of the press changed in a very short period of time for one that was written by uh, workers uh, for uh, the working class to one that was you know a, a profitable activity now we 've seen that process continue in the twentieth century and we 've actually seen a move in the 1970s and eighties from family owned newspapers, uh, family-owned and press and media that really took some, uh, and there were problems, of course, with it. It was still a profitable activity and it still represented the interests of a small group, but it was still based on a certain moral code or ethical code about journalism. But since the 1980s, all the major media, both in Australia and globally, press and television, um, and now internet have all been corporatized and they 've owned by large conglomerates that have 
boards of directors, corporate interests uh, beholden to shareholders, and so their interest is not in telling the truth, but in making a profit. And that has changed the nature of the press dramatically. So, I mean, I'm in complete agreement with Pilger that, in fact, the mainstream press and the media are now part of the ideological structure, uh, representatives of the interests of those that rule over society rather than some sort of fourth estate that keeps the bastard honest or uncovers the truth or, you know, the other cliches that we have long used for journalists and the media. And interestingly, here in Australia, a number of polls have come out that have shown that the integrity of journalists and people who work in the media is as low as politicians and used car salespeople, real estate agents. So, and that might be unfair to used car salespeople and real estate agents uh, because they do have a code and a set of regulations that are enforceable that keeps their practices somewhat in the public interest. But we can't say that about journalists. Journalists and the press media in Australia are self-regulated and that's proven to be a complete farce, I think. And we've seen what's happened in the UK with the uh, phone hacking scandal, which is really only a sensationalisation of a much deeper problem with the media and the press in the UK and its uh, very close uh, relationship with the political class and the economic elite, which has been less... Uh, reported on than the sort of unethical behaviour of the the sort of key people in uh, the the world uh, the news of the world. Okay, so that's the first thing. I agree with Pilger on that. The second thing is I also agree with him that Saudi Arabia, for example, and many of the dictators that were overthrown or challenged by Arab populations in the last three or four years have flown under the radar largely because they're friends of the West. I mean, Saudi Arabia is responsible, in my eyes, for much of the bloodshed that is occurring across the Middle East today. It has supported Wahhabism, it has funded the likes of Al-Qaeda, and there's a great deal of evidence to point towards Saudi uh, funding and assistance for uh, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. So the idea that somehow Saudi Arabia is a good, moderate friend, and Julie Bishop said this last year, Saudi Arabia is a moderate friend of Australia, is absolute rubbish. But, of course, the press here is is so beholden to the political and economic elite that they'll say, they more often than not, will just repeat the sort of banal statements of political uh, politicians like Julie Bishop. However, there are reporters who do sometimes break that mould, and I think Robert Fisk, who has long written for The Independent, is one of those people who has... for many years, spoken truth to power on um, on issues around the Middle East. So, I mean, you know, that's the other side of it. And John Pilger himself has long had a voice in some parts of the press and media, and he has spoken often about the nature of Saudi involvement in other parts of the world. So, I mean, it's, yes, I do agree that we need a fourth estate, but we also have to recognise that there have been some gaps, some space for critical um, um, commentary in what is our mainstream or or regular media. So, yes, it is a problem. I don't know if it's as overwhelmingly bad as as some people suggest. And to say that there's no alternative voices, I think, is an unfair reflection. 3CR obviously represents a... uh 
a different source. And what I was interested in is this general notion that it's not actually possible to do a good job in terms of collection of information and then getting it out. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. There is a lot of information and there is a lot of ways of correlating these facts. But that the international media has become like a gossip chain. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that, and you know, there's no doubt that uh, most of the international media is more interested in whether Posh and Dave Beckham are happy than whether you know the Saudis are funding nefarious um, you know activities in Pakistan or wherever it might be. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, you know, and I guess. The, and this was part of what, to return to Robert Fisk, this was part of what Robert Fisk said when he was making his commentary about the post-9-11 uh, reporting and the focus of the media. And he said that the media spent a great deal of time presenting what happened and how it happened, because those things were sensational. They could be, uh, you know, sort of reported from... In, in really sort of spectacular ways. We all have the images of the t Twin Towers collapsing um, and the planes hitting those towers etched in our mind, and they were horrific events that we shouldn't forget. But he asked, when was there an attempt by any international media to ask the question of why it happened? And I think that, again, goes to, to what Pilger and others are saying, is that in our international media and press, there's no real energy for digging deep and asking difficult, challenging questions about why events occur. What are the historical, sociological reasons that we have Islamic State in Iraq and Syria? What are the reasons, the support, the interests, the motivations that have driven the US to f support Israel uncritically? Those are not the issues get, that get reported very often in the international media and press, and they're the issues that really will tell us a lot about the state of the world today. One of the things Pilger brings up, and which is part of the whole gossip chain arrangements, which don't just talk about celebrity, but yeah. actually are in terms of spectacle, is the creation of goodies and baddies, the white hats and the black hats, which yeah. takes us straight back to Hollywood movies because, uh, as my father, a lawyer, used to say, he likes to watch the cowboy movies because you always know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And uh, his life was a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and another story that someone just told me today, which is fascinating, she said that she used to work as a bar worker and she had blonde hair. And then she uh, made it much shorter and uh, the, uh, her hair was much darker. She lost her tips overnight. Wow. And it struck me that this is part of a uh, part of the people's understanding of the world in Hollywood terms, and that in actual fact, what's going on in the Middle East at the moment is, and public opinion is actually affected by that. Oh, look, I ag I agree. I mean, I think the stereotypes that dominate the way that we understand the events in the Middle East are, um, or the way that they're presented and made to be understandable by politicians um, and others is, is part of the reason why there's been an enthusiasm to go to war in that part of the world. 
um, again, by Australia and US and, and other um, countries that really have no interest or, sorry, have no, the, the general population have no reason or interest to support another military campaign in this part of the world. And it's those stereotypes and the fear that you mentioned, the, the sort of culture of fear that you mentioned earlier, that play into this, where we must go over there to protect ourselves because those people are so unpredictable and violent. Um, of course, their violence and unpredictability has a lot to do with the sort of conditions that have been created in those parts of the world by Western intervention, by global capitalism, by imperialism rather than any sort of hatred of the way that we are here. And it's that sort of ability to, to re represent events in that they, these, about, and this is, I'm quoting Tony Abbott, our great leader, when he said that Syria's cry, civil war was a case of bad guys and worse guys. That sort of simplistic stereotype tells us nothing about the events over there and really is just part you know, as far as I can tell, is built on a real misunderstanding or a willingness or an ignorance, a profound ignorance of the complexity of the politics in that region. If that story was told, I don't think the public opinion here in Australia would be anywhere near as willing or as positive towards a campaign um, in that part of the world. Do you think um, it's a little bit like the, or is it the same, as the imperialist First World War? What's going on in the Middle East? Is it the same imperial war? There's elements of it. There's no doubt that, uh, as Lenin famously said, that the financial capital in particular benefited and, and had a great deal of interest in war, um, of, uh, a major campaign in um, the early part of the century. Um, there's certainly no doubt that corporate America in particular, but also global capital, sees uh, financial and ideological benefits from being in the Middle East at the moment. And then the other similarity is that the sort of ideological power of, the, uh, of, of vilifying uh, the enemy has played a large part in galvanising popular opinion for a campaign in that part of the world. But then I think all wars have some element of that. And um, I'm, I recall... Um, you know, the Falklands War in the early 1980s where conservative uh, leader in the UK used the opportunity of a campaign to mobilise public opinion and subsequently win an almost unwinnable um, election. So, yes, I think there is there are definitely similarities and, you know, until we start to break through the stereotypes and the misrepresentations of the Middle East and of people in that region, then the capacity for political and economic elites to to, um, to take us to war that we don't wars that we don't need to be involved in will continue, and that's the real challenge for people like myself: is how to break down those misrepresentations and and to challenge the sort of popular discourse on the Middle East so that politicians can't continue to opportunistically use war in the Middle East to bolster their own domestic and international interests. And there's, in my mind, there's no doubt that Tony Abbott's enthusiasm for campaigning in Syria and Iraq has everything to do with his flagging fortunes here in Australia 
and very little to do with the interests of the Syrians and the Iraqi people. Just before you go, uh, yeah. it's something that's uh, really struck me lately. We've just had the uh, Victorian election and Labor has won and it's uh, quite a resounding victory and the uh, or a resounding defeat from the first uh, one-term Liberal government. Yeah. But part of it has been the defeat of the East-West Link and this was uh, part of a very long-term community campaign uh, against that road. And people are very happy that it's been uh, got rid of, but there is these little leaking bits of uh, media and little conversations from people that saying basically can't, don't trust the happiness effectively. They feel yeah. that it's going to just be pulled away. And the thing that I wanted to talk about was this notion of it's not just the defeat, but it's important for the neoliberal ideology that ordinary people, which is all of us, yes. can't actually believe that they can have effect. Oh, absolutely. That you're I being mean, colonised by them on every level, even when they have been defeated. Yeah, absolutely. When I mean, this is the first message I give my undergraduate students, is the notion that somehow the market or the economy or the system is greater than the sum of us and that we have no impact on it is just a propaganda, a way of propagandising and weakening our resolve to be effective citizens and members of a community. You know, and it's worked. And you can see in all the surveys and um, anecdotal uh, stuff, the, the research that's been done, or uh, sorry, the research and the anecdotal stuff that's over the last 20 or 30 years, that people feel disconnected and disenfranchised and disillusioned by politics, and therefore they've, they've, they've sort of distanced themselves from the political system. That's a victory for neoliberalism. Every time someone says, oh, I don't really care, or there's nothing we can do, or both the parties are the same, then that's, what, that's the neoliberal win. It's when people do what happened in Indi at the last federal election, or what seems to have happened in Victoria, and what seems to have happened in South Australia, the by-election. Or in Kobani. Yes, absolutely. Or in the Arab Spring. Or USA at the moment with all the uh, absolutely. rage against police murder. Yes, absolutely. It's when people start doing that that, in fact, we have an Im we actually do overturn that very, uh, I think, very insidious message that has seeped into our consciousness over the last two or three decades. The market does not determine economic outcomes. People are the market. We have capacity to actually you know, individuals, communities, uh, societies in, in more widely, countries, social movements across the globe actually do have an impact. And it's when that message is made and we believe it and we, and we actually take action on it. That and we, we hold see, the line. Yeah, and we hold the line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the message I give to all my students and uh, you know hopefully it gets through to some of them and i i agree with you entirely on that annie that we, we do make a difference 
And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. We're getting out of here. Uh, Asia Pacific Links is coming up next. We'll go out with that other scourge of uh, Western society, the single mum, as represented by the Reds under the beds. Look out, chum, I'm a single mum. I'll eat you for breakfast. Yum, yum, yum. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.